G'day everyone. Uh, I've been looking forward to this sermon series all year. It's just a bit sad we can't do it in person and we're doing it online instead, uh, but that's life at the moment. Uh, I've been looking forward to it because I love opening up the Old Testament and seeing how everything God has done from creation right through to the coming of Jesus, how everything God has done is about the coming of Jesus and points forward to Jesus. So when we look at an Old Testament book like this, it's a bit different to looking at Philippians or Romans or a book like that. It's not speaking directly to our situation in the same way. Uh, There's not as much what we call direct application to us when we look at a book like 1 Kings. Instead, we're seeing together how God works. And in particular, we're seeing together how God works to fulfill his promises. What I love also are just the stories in this part of the Old Testament. You see, 1 Kings is full of those great Bible stories that we love to read in our children's Bibles, actually. And in fact, a couple of weeks ago, as I was starting to think about preaching this sermon, I turned on my television on a Sunday afternoon and there was a movie filmed in 1955. That's what you get on Sunday afternoons. Uh, And it was the story of King Solomon from 1 Kings. But told in a Hollywood style but that's because it is a great story Uh, these are the stories we love to read about kings being double-crossed prophets who have incredible uh, battles on mountaintops with pagan priests it's Indiana Jones type stuff so my hope as much as anything is that you'll actually really get into one kings through this series that's my hope that you'll actually just love God's word want to read it be stirred up by it So what's 1 Kings all about? Well, first of all, uh, the two books of 1 and 2 Kings go together. They're they're not really two books. They're one book. They were just separated because that's only so many words you can fit on a scroll back when they were written. So we'll get to 2 Kings next year. So we're just looking at the first half of this story. But these books cover the period of Israel's history from the last days of King David. So you know who King David is. He was the first great king of Israel. So this starts with David's last days and then it deals with what happens after David dies. When Israel splits into two kingdoms, you end up with Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And then it follows the story of these various kings of Israel and Judah right through. That's why it's called the book of Kings, of course. But that's what can make reading one kings quite confusing because you have all these kings ruling in these two different kingdoms with all similar sounding names. So you have Jeroboam's and Rehoboam's, you have Jehoram's and Joram's, and then at one point you even have two different Ahaziah's ruling the two different kingdoms. So it all gets very, very confusing, and that can make people turn away from reading books like 1 Kings to go to the more comfortable parts of the Bible that we're more familiar with, the New Testament, and that's really sad because this is an incredible part of God's Word. So my hope is you'll find each sermon helpful, but more than that, my hope is you'll find it helpful reading the book of 1 Kings over the next nine weeks. So you should have got via email a, uh, a sort of a reading plan to read ahead through the series, but if you miss that, on the end of the sermon outline is the reading for next week so that you can read ahead. Uh, if we're ready to go, we'll pray before we get into it. Heavenly Father, you tell us that all scripture is breathed by you and all scripture is useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, for training us in righteousness. So we pray that you will use this part of your scriptures tonight to do that for us. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 
Well, open up 1 Kings chapter 1. Uh, today we'll hear the first four chapters just briefly. So I'm going to skate over sort of chapters 1 and 2 before I get to chapter 3 where I focus a little more. Uh, and if I can share a prejudice, please have your paper Bible open. Yeah, you'll get lost flicking around on your phone. You won't be able to follow the flow as we jump through it. So you need to be able to scan the whole story. So start at 1 Kings chapter 1 verse 1 and it says... Now King David was old and getting on in years, although they covered him with bedclothes, he could not get warm. And so right from the start, you actually get the issue that's facing God's people in 1 Kings. David's time is over. That's the issue. David was the great man. David was the man who God had used to bring Israel together under God. David was God's first Messiah, first Christ, the the anointed one. But now David is on his last legs and he's in a sad and a sorry state at the end of his life. He needs a caregiver just to keep him warm. And that sets up the issue, which is who will take over? That's the question that we're starting the book with. Who will take over? It's like when our Prime Minister's approval ratings go down and immediately the newspapers start asking, well, who's going to take over? Who's circling? Who's going to be the next one? But this is not just a political issue, if you know your Bible well, because the Bible is all about God fulfilling his promises to save a people for his very own. And then through that people, God's promise to bless the whole world. And God had promised David that it would be through his son, a descendant of David, would be the one who would come and bring God's blessing. The Messiah, the Messiah, would rule over God's people forever and bring God's blessing to the whole world. Now that great promise was back in 2 Samuel chapter 7. So I'm giving you a lot of reading this week. You need to know, it's just one of those chapters of the Bible that's important for understanding the whole Bible. So I'd encourage you, go and read that later on this week to remind yourself again, 2 Samuel 7, where God made that great promise to David. And so this question, who will take over from David? It's not just a political question. It's actually a theological question. It's so much bigger than politics. Because whoever it is, the question will be, Could they be the forever king, the saviour that God has promised? Now we tend to think, well, wasn't David the king, so isn't it obvious his older son should just take over? Sort of like Prince Charles will do when Elizabeth goes to be with the Lord. It's like why William is ahead of Harry in the chain of succession. But it wasn't like that. There'd never been a succession in Israel. So David wasn't Saul's son. Saul's sons, none of them had become king. Uh, It wasn't automatic like that. And so there isn't any shortage of contenders, which was actually David's fault because David in his sinfulness had taken more than one wife. So he had more than a few sons. Uh, So already, if you remember back in the books of 1 and 2 Samuel, uh, the eldest, Amnon, he's already been murdered by the third son Absalom the second son just went missing we don't know what happened to him Absalom has already staged a rebellion so he's been killed this is an incredibly functional family David's family Uh, and so we come to the next likely candidate Adonijah and so Adonijah you can read all about this in chapter one we read the first half of it in chapter one but you read on Adonijah thinks I'll take over but he's not even willing for David to wait for David to die And so he gets his campaign team together 
uh, and he gets all the key military leaders, he gets the key religious leaders, and then he calls all his brothers and all those key leaders together, and he basically puts the crown on his own head. He basically stages his own coronation. And he does all of this without talking to his father, without talking to David, who's nearly dead by this point, but he knows nothing. And so it looks like Adonijah has succeeded. He's going to be the next king of Israel. He's going to be God's anointed one. But just a few key people have other plans. So people like Nathan, the prophet, who was always David's closest advisor, and Benaiah, the commander of the royal bodyguard, the commander of David's sort of crack troops, his SAS group, if you like. They get together with Bathsheba, David's favorite wife, and they go see David. And they say, hey, hey David, don't you remember... You already decided that Solomon would be the king, not Adonijah. Solomon was not the oldest, but what he was, was the favorite son of the favorite wife. This is all very, very human and quite grubby, really. And so David says, all right, I'll show Adonijah who's king. So so you've got Adonijah holding his victory party and everyone carrying on and and having a great party. But then they hear another party start up. And I love this. Go to chapter 1, verse 39. It says, Zadok, the priest, took the horn of oil from the tabernacle and anointed Solomon. Then they blew the ram's horn and all the people proclaimed, long live King Solomon. All the people followed him playing flutes and rejoicing with such a great joy that the earth split open from the sound. Now, I think that's metaphorical about the earth splitting open from the sound. The point is, there is a massive noise because all the people have risen up behind Solomon. And at that point, everyone who backed Adonijah knows we've bet on the wrong horse. And so I love verse 49 there. I love these little moments in 1 Kings. Look at verse 49. It says, then all of Adonijah's guests got up trembling and went their separate ways. Just like our modern politicians when their guy loses, suddenly he's very lonely. They're like cockroaches sort of scuttling off into the darkness at that point. And so Solomon is the king. Now, of course, that is a great story. And I hope that if you haven't already started reading along in 1 Kings, you'll read the story that he, and, and, and keep going through as we read right through the book. But you'll reread chapters 1 to 4 this week. And as you do that, jot down questions or things you're not sure about. I'm sure we'll have a question time in a few weeks. But I always say these books of the Old Testament, they're better than any novel you can pick up, better than any Netflix show you can waste your time watching. But besides being a great story, what does it have to teach us? other than telling us the history of how Solomon became king. I think there are loads of things, but I'm just going to draw out two tonight. The first thing is, it shows us that God's ways are different to the world's ways. We tend to think of Solomon as as the great man that he becomes in a couple of chapters. But he wasn't that at this point. He was the obscure younger son, probably still a teenager, of the later wife. Adonijah was the impressive one he had the stature he had all the backing he had all the army he had all the priests but God wanted Solomon and that is the way God works from the very beginning of the Bible when he chooses Abraham an obscure man from out in the middle of nowhere Abraham to be the one who he will make his promises to who he will bless the whole world through and then he chooses Jacob the youngest Instead of Esau, the oldest, he chooses David, 
the little youngest son working on a farm rather than Saul, the impressive bodybuilding warrior. Here, he chooses Solomon, not the next in line, not the man who's riding around on chariots. And of course, most wonderfully, when Jesus came into the world, he came not as a king on the throne, not the obvious ruler of the universe, but as a baby in a manger. And even today, God uses, it tells us in 1 and 2 Corinthians, God uses the ordinary people. God uses the unimpressive people to shame the wise and the arrogant. So first thing, it shows us God's ways are different to the world's ways. Secondly, it shows us how God works through sinful human beings. Sometimes God intervenes in miraculous ways to bring about his plans. Every once in a while that happens in the Bible. But generally he works through the mundane, the ordinary and even the sinful actions of sinful human beings just like us. As you read those two chapters, do you notice how it all happens through human means? There's no miraculous of God, to, intervention of God to make this happen. God uses their dirty politics. God uses an aspirational mother. He uses just the, the influence and sin of sometimes, frankly, awful people. God uses it all to bring about his plans. And that's what we need to remember. Nothing and no one can thwart God's plans. God is at work. Even through the sinful plans of human beings, God is at work bringing about his plans for the world and his plans for the good of his people. And again, we see that most wonderfully in the death of Jesus. Evil people did evil things to condemn Jesus to death. But God was in charge of it all. And God used their evil plans to enact his plan of salvation for the world. And again, that extends to us as well. Even when people are doing evil, God is at work for the eternal good of those who love him. That's just a couple of lessons to draw from Solomon's rise to power. But now Solomon has been made the king. So the question is, what sort of a king will Solomon be? And especially that question I raised before from 2 Samuel 7, is he the true king? Is he God's promised king? So turn over now to chapter 3. We didn't read this, so you'll need it open. Turn to chapter 3. Through chapter 2, Solomon gets to work and he starts doing political things. But what's clear is that Solomon loves God. So it's a good start with Solomon. He loves God and he's determined to follow in David's footsteps. Things are starting well. And so God appears to Solomon and he makes him an offer. Look from verse 4. The king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there because it was the most famous high place. He offered a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream at night. God said, ask, what should I give you? Many years ago, there was an ad on TV for Tim Tams where a genie appears to a lady and says, hey, three wishes and all that. And the girl's really smart. And what does she wish for? She wishes for a thousand more wishes. What would you ask for if you could ask for anything? And this is no pretend genie. This is the God of the universe asking Solomon, you can have anything. What do you want from me? And is there ever a question actually that exposes your heart more than that one? Is there ever a question? What, what is your first reaction when you can have anything? What do you ask? Do you ask for money? Do you ask for power? 
Do you ask for happiness? Generally, it's variations on those three themes that we ask for. But Solomon's answer is wonderful. He asks for godliness and wisdom. Look from verse 7, but the answer is especially in verse 9. He says, Lord, my God, you have now made your servant king in my father David's place. Yet I am just a youth with no experience in leadership. Your servant is among your people you have chosen, a people too numerous to be numbered or counted. And now verse 9. So give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. It's the key thing. See what he asked for? Give your servant an obedient heart to judge your people and to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? He asked for the wisdom to be able to judge what is right the wisdom to be able to judge what is good the wisdom to be able to lead God's people well and God loves Solomon's answer so God doesn't just give him wisdom he then gives Solomon everything else as well he gives him incredible power he gives him incredible wealth he gives him incredible authority he gives him the promise of a long life because if you have wisdom then you will use those other things well. And so Solomon becomes known more than anything else for his wisdom. People come from all over the world to sit at the feet of Solomon to hear his wisdom. In our Bibles, we have this thing we call the wisdom literature, the books of Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Songs, and they all trace back to Solomon. That's why they are the wisdom literature. And then we get stories about his great wisdom ruling the people of Israel. And so we're given probably the most famous one here, the second half of chapter 3. Come there now with me. You can read it in full later. But it's the story of two prostitutes who come to Solomon. And they've both had babies, but one had died. And so one woman claimed that the other had stolen her baby off her during the night and claimed it as her own. And so it was a real she said, she said sort of thing. You haven't got any DNA testing to do to to work out whose child it is back then. So what does Solomon do? Look at chapter 3, verse 24. The king continued, bring me a sword. So they brought the sword to the king. Solomon said, cut the living boy in two and give half to one and half to the other. And one of the women at that point cries out, no, 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 let her have the baby. Let her keep the baby. And Solomon says, well, there's our answer. Give the baby to that woman because that's the mother, the woman who would rather give up the child than let him die. See, that is the wisdom of Solomon. People still use that story to show justice and and perception and, and how to understand people and how to make decisions. You see, what is wisdom? Wisdom is understanding our world correctly. And wisdom is understanding people correctly and how to deal with people correctly and wisdom is then knowing how to act rightly or justly in every situation but you only understand the world correctly and you only understand people correctly and you only know how to act rightly when you understand and have the right attitude to God see our world is becoming increasingly unwise our world increasingly actually doesn't understand people And that's because our world has turned its back on God. See, that's why when Solomon wrote his great book of wisdom, the book of Proverbs, he starts by saying, it'll come up on the screen, Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, 
He says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You see, that is Solomon. He fears the Lord, and so that makes him wise. God makes him the wisest of leaders. And so at this point in the story, we're at an incredible high point of the Bible. The man who God has chosen is sitting on the throne. And just for once in the history of God's people, their leader is a man who fears God, a man of incredible wisdom. And so at that point, people would have been asking, is this it? Is this one the great Messiah? And we'll see how that pans out in the next few weeks. But now as we close, again we ask, what are we to do with these two chapters? Well, as we close, two final points about wisdom. First point I want to make is this. Be like Solomon. Chase wisdom above everything else. More than anything else, shouldn't we long to live to please God? And to do that, we have to understand his world, his way. And to do that, we need to fear God. We need to honor him. We need to love him. We need to listen to him. Chase wisdom. How do you become wise? It's by filling your mind with God's word. That's how you bring your mind into line with the mind of God, by filling it with the word of God. And like Solomon, ask God for wisdom. And you know, the wonderful promise of the scriptures is that God will answer that prayer. Have a look at James chapter 1, verse 5. Again, it'll be coming up on the screen. It says, now if any of you lacks wisdom, he should ask God who gives to all generously and without criticizing, and it will be given to him. Isn't that a wonderful promise? There's an actual promise of God. If you ask for wisdom, God will give it to you. But you know, the sad thing is, that we generally don't even ask. We are so tempted to chase after the things of this world rather than after God's wisdom. We're so tempted to chase after wealth and power and happiness. But sadly, what we find is without God's wisdom, those things don't fulfill us. They don't actually deliver and they certainly don't last. But strangely, when we have wisdom... God often blesses us with those other things. See, it's like Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount. Come to Matthew chapter 6. Again, it'll come up on the screen. And listen to what Jesus says. He says, so don't worry saying, what will we eat? Or what will we drink? Or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. In other words, seek first wisdom. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things will be provided for you. See, just like God provided for Solomon, he provides for us when we seek first his wisdom. Chase wisdom more than anything else. Chase wisdom. Second point, follow the truly wise king. See, as wise as Solomon was, even at the beginning, there were hints that he was going to fall. He, he was sacrificing at the high places, which is something actually God didn't want. Uh, he was making political alliances with Egypt through marriage, which is something God had expressly warned against. See, even here, right at the beginning, at this high point, 
there were hints that Solomon's wisdom was going to turn into hubris, that Solomon's wisdom was going to turn into pride and self-reliance. And that's why in the end, Solomon is not the Messiah. That's why in the end, we don't follow Solomon, we follow God's truly wise king. You see, we need to follow the one who Solomon was just a shadow of, the one Solomon was pointing us towards, the true son of David. Jesus is the truly wise ruler. And he is the one who, when he returns, will rule the world with true wisdom and true grace. And he is the one who now shows us true wisdom through his word. So in the end, the wisest thing a person ever does is turn to Jesus. The wisest thing a person ever does is trust in Jesus. The wisest thing you ever do is follow Jesus. See, that is what it is to fear the Lord. To fear the Lord now is to trust in Jesus, is to follow him, is to live for him. And that is the beginning of wisdom. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, help us to be people who chase wisdom. Help us to be people who seek to fill our minds with your word. But also, Father, help us to be people who are truly wise because we listen to the Lord Jesus and trust in him. And it's in his name we pray. Amen.